Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast, bringing you heartwarming and real conversations with teachers on the front line of education from across the country. I am Karen Sarah Watson, and I am a teacher. This podcast is for those who want to better understand the experiences of today's teachers. Come join us. Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have Melissa Tomlinson, the president of Badass Teachers, on with me. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on, first of all. And um, I just want to tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, Tell me about Badass Teachers, and then I want to get right into what's happening right now with teachers. Okay, so I am a special education teacher down in South New Jersey. I've been teaching for over 20 years, and currently I am the Executive Director of Badass Teachers Association. And Badass Teachers started as a Facebook group back in 2013, where educators started coming together and recognizing that they weren't alone in the idea that we were in a fight for public education, essentially. beginning to question standardized testing, attempts at privatization, charter schools, uh, you know, privatizing different services within public education. So from there, it formed into a nonprofit advocacy group uh, that has been fighting at the national level uh, against corporate education reform, helping states to fight in their level, and also ho- helping locals to fight. And of course, our biggest fight right now is around school reopening. Right. So let's get into it. What What is, first of all, what is going on? Because right now, as a New York City public school teacher, I'm required to, go, to re- report to school as of September 10th. And teachers are terrified. I know principals are talking about that this is too soon. So tell me what's going on on your end. So a lot of it depends on what can be done in each state to fight against it. You know, the condition of the school buildings in the states, the laws and the regulations that were put into place, all all of the executive orders that were put into place uh, when we first started with COVID cases across the country and using that language and those regulations to point out and show that most of our school buildings are not safe, uh, especially around concerns with the air conditioning and the HVAC systems. We know that putting a group of people in a room, whether it be students or adults, puts them in a lot of potential danger of contracting the COVID viruses. And when the United States is still within the the top, last I looked at was the top three countries of COVID cases globally, that's a big concern. We're not going to be able to contain this virus unless we continue keeping people at home safe with their families where they're not Uh, coming into contact with others. So we've been partnering with a couple different organizations and working on really uh, putting out models of ways that educators can join with community members to kind of fight back against us. So we've been doing it with National Educators United, uh, which has been a great group as far as putting together actions and plans. Um, I've been working hard here in New Jersey. We've really been pushing back. We have gotten the governor to back off a little bit on 
Originally, he wanted all schools to be open for in-person learning in September, but last week he just announced that if schools felt that they were not able to do so, that they could push back the start of the school year. Now we're pushing for him to say that all schools need to push back the start of in-person learning in September. Right. So, um, so what is happening with that? How, what, what, tell me some of the actions that you, along with National Educators United, who were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, tell me how you guys are working together to make those steps. What are some of those steps that you're doing? So we joined with uh, Demand Safe Schools Coalition, which is uh, like Los Angeles teachers and Chicago teachers and a couple of those other really strong uh, union uh, that have been fighting for the common good of their community. Uh, we joined with them on August 3rd. Journey for Justice was community groups that were involved um, and did actions across the country. They included car parades. Um, one group in Arkansas did a classroom demonstration of what a COVID classroom would look like. Um, so New Jersey specifically, we did the car, we did a motor march on August 3rd. And then we went in front of the governor's office and we did a wall of remembrance where we had pictures of the over 400 educators that have passed away due to COVID. And we took a moment to remember them and, and what they uh, lost their lives to. And then actually yesterday, outside of where our governor does a press conference, we did a COVID classroom demonstration and then a die-in. Uh, to bring more attention and more, and more continue these conversations and still push back against the school opening. Do you feel like your steps are helping? Do you think that's part of the reason why he, the pushback, he decided to at least let some classrooms not, um, schools not go back? I do, I do. I mean, it, it also included with those in-person actions have been, uh, you know, petitions and letters and direct email, direct calling, and not just targeting the governor, but also targeting those that influence him. So New Jersey has a county education um, structure that then uh, is pushed down to the locals. So we have over 500 local districts but then they coordinate through the county. So we targeted the county superintendents and we went to their offices and tried to have conversations with them and sent them letters and petitions. Uh, most of their offices were closed because they're working remotely. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I do feel it has some, it has had some effect. Like I said, he did has stepped back a little bit. Um, but more importantly, what we've been doing not only has helped that pushback, but it's also helped our over 500 locals fight back on their own. We've provided a model of different actions and different ways that they could activate and engage their members to, to come together around this. So actually yesterday we had a, a couple locals come up to us and say, you know, thank you so much for this. We've taken some of your actions, we've modified it for our local and we're using it. So that, to me has been the most exciting. That's actually, you know, that's organizing at one of its best points is when you get people to come together and you help them do that. So what's happening with, um, with uh, places that are, we're, we're all at risk, but Arizona and Florida, like what are, happens, what's happening to your members down there? How are they organizing and, and how is that going? So, or Arizona, actually, I just saw yesterday had a district that 
created a sick out um, because they're in, they were like one of the highest risk districts and they were due to open, they, they called out. And, and I'm pretty sure it was a concerted effort. I haven't spoken to that district uh, yet, but as a result of all the educators that called out for the first day of school, the district was not able to open. So that was definitely a, a great successful win. And I know Arizona is going to um, have some conversations about how that happened and see what they could do with it on a statewide level. Uh, you may even see a reactivation of the Arizona Liaison Network, which was very famous for creating the Arizona strike two years ago, the Red for Ed walkout. Um, Florida, I know everybody is wearing red on Wednesday as a point of solidarity. They have a lawsuit pending. So the state union has actually sued the state around this. So we're watching closely to see what happens with that lawsuit and encouraging other states to, you know, ask their union to look into doing the same. Well, um, you know, I talked to the teachers in Texas and they are, they were, I mean, we're all terrified, but they were writing their wills. They said that they had no rights. They don't have a union that's protecting them down there. Do you have members in Texas? And what are they saying to you? So the members in Texas, uh, specifically, I have some connections in Austin and they've really joined together with the community groups that are concerned about the safety and well-being of the students and of the community members and they've expanded the work that they're doing to also bring in the conversation around social justice issues right the fact of why are we going back so soon and that's because our economy is based upon the exploitation of the underpaid worker and how that is typically black and brown community members working for lower wages that are in a position where they have to go back. So they've really expanded the conversation. They're working to uh, you know, protect those that might be facing eviction or foreclosure on their homes. So they're doing a, a really broad campaign on it. Right, so what about, now what about New York here? Because I feel like, I see actions are being taken in other places where it's actually working, but with our mayor, I, we're, we're still slated to open on September 10th. Like, you know, what can we do? Like, what are some of the actions that are happening in New York that your members are participating in? And what are your feelings about being able to get it to push back here? New York, so it's funny because New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, all the three governors have been lockstep with their decisions. So it's almost, I think we may need a national push to target those three governors first off. But coming from inside New York, it's a, it's almost a double battle that you're fighting because NYSET has not been the strongest in taking a stance and telling the governor that no, we're not going to do this. Um, so I know there's a lot of people in New York who have been uh, participating in some town halls and some meetings in, in New York bats and they've created an action plan against NYSET, which is a shame that they have to do that against their own union. So they're creating the, act the actions against NYSET and then they're also engaging in actions in New York against the mayor and against the governor. I know they participated in the August 3rd uh, day of action as well. There were a couple of protests in New York City. I think there was another one earlier this week too, if I remember correctly. 
uh, same type of, uh, you know, art activism. It was a death march in New York City. Right. To bring a lot attention. Of it, rank and file, movement of rank and file, I know, is, is, yes. is doing a lot of work with that. Um, so what, what can you say to teachers who are right now being forced to go back? Like what, how do we comfort teachers, the anxiety right now? Because it is so high. It, it, I know for myself, it's just, it can be crippling. So how do we protect teachers and what do we say to them to help them? It, it is, it can be crippling. And I was actually thinking about this the other night because I do have my moments of panic as well, right? You know, like, oh my gosh, I'm really going to have to do this. What am I going to do to protect? I have two parents that live a few towns over that I take care of and they're both cancer survivors. So I'm responsible for their care. Um, I, I think the, the number one thing that you can do is to act, to find out who in your area is engaging in actions or engaging in conversations and surround yourself with those people. I think the idea of just standing still and not doing anything about it is more, almost more crippling, right? You want to know at the end of the day that you fought against this because it was wrong and you fought against it as hard as you possibly could. And what that looks like for, you know, people, everybody has a different capacity level as to what they can engage in emotionally and physically. But not doing anything just kind of perpetuates that crippling feeling. So I really strongly encourage people to get involved and engaged and act. Right. And so what happens if it's, we don't, it, it, like what's going on with strike is my, I I guess I'm leading to that too, is that what are the, what's the process leading up to that? If that's the last choice we have. It looks different in every state and what that could look like. Um, But it comes down to the rank and file having to lead it. Uh, in states that have strong union protections, they also somehow happen to be states where strikes are technically illegal. Um, in states that don't have strong union protections, sometimes they're illegal, sometimes they're not. But that's also been where we've had the successful red for ed strikes, like West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma. Um, it, it takes it's really, it has to be built from the ground up. The union leaders get themselves caught into a position where they have to play politics and watch their language. But deep down inside, a lot of them have to go into school buildings too and they, they wish for a member strike and they, they under, underground encourage these conversations and these actions. And, you know, it's as simple as, you know, building a majority consensus within a local, having conversations, doing this, everything that you can to build up to that, right? Go to board of ed meetings, um, you know, attend them virtually right now in most places, draft a letter to be sent to the board of education, have everybody sign on to it, and then have that conversation what is our line in the sand? What's, what are we asking for before we go into these school buildings? And what are we willing to do if we do not get that? And in some places it's a pledge, you know, you create a pledge and have people sign on that they're going to call out that first day of school. Or it may be, um, you know, you might have to start small and create a reporting system where you're going to report every single time a classroom is not cleaned or that 
um, you know, a kid coughs in the classroom or, you know, each local has to decide that. How much do you work with parents also with um, badass teachers? Do you have, um, do you have parents involved in your group or? Um, yeah, yeah. Badass teachers uh, has never been just for parents. It's been a space. It is educate or just for educators. It is educator heavy, um, but we do have parents in there that also are fighting for public education. We do a lot of work with Journey for Justice Alliance groups um, in New Jersey. Actually, I have a panel Monday afternoon which is uh, parents, students, and educators all discussing our concerns. So we have our coalition in New Jersey as well. And I, you can't do this alone, right? You need parent support, you need community support, and everybody has to come together around what you believe in and, and do that work. And recognize as educators, you can't just be there only when you need something, right? When the parents in the community need something that you have to support them as well. Right. I think parents are, are incredibly, it sounds to me like our mayor and our chancellor are listening to what parents want. But I also feel like parents have also been um, kind of put in a box because they're saying that kids who they have a choice of going remotely or doing this hybrid, hybrid, um, doing this hybrid uh, classroom. But the problem is if they decide to go remote, they can't get into the hybrid classroom. So they're saying like you, you until like January or February. So a lot of parents are opting into to the hybrid classroom because they have no choice, but it's not totally what they want either. Right, right. Uh, uh, somebody was just telling me about that last night too in New Jersey, right? They had to start the school year and then if they felt safe, they could pull their child out and that kind of creates almost a, a false picture of what people really want for the beginning of the school year. I think if the choice was that we pushed back the opening and we did a phased opening approach, uh, that people would feel more comfortable with that and you could have, you know, created a, a better sense of safety for everybody. Um, I, I, we were on a call last night about equitable distance learning and we heard from a retired principal down in Kentucky who is now working through her churches to create learning pods. I hate calling them learning pods because that's such a, it's kind of been an elitist thing in right. areas right now. Right. Right. Um, but the churches are working to create spaces where the students can come and access internet because a lot of the rural areas in Kentucky, they were really talking about the lack of access to internet, even with the Wi-Fi, because the cell data, mobile data doesn't even reach some areas. Um, so I thought this was a, a, an excellent opportunity for educators and community members to come together around solutions about how they could make it safe and not put children and educators in school or at least reduce the number of those interactions within a school building and it would still be following the cdc guidelines a lot of it would be in outdoor spaces or you know with all open doors and open windows so that fresh air could get in and it would it would wouldn't be a hundred percent safe, but it would be safer than a, an older school building at this moment. Right. So what about, um, now what about training? So my, the other thing that has been concerning me is that 
I never received proper training for remote learning. And my question is, why didn't we not get that this summer? Why did we, we spent a lot of time this summer trying to figure out how we're gonna open up the schools, but there was not a lot of time that could have been done for training. How was it on your end? Were, were teachers getting remote training where you are? Not at all, not at all. And, and this isn't just New Jersey, New York. It's been across the country. Educators are, are turning around right now and being told that they'll have one to four days before students come into school and they have to learn new platforms or they have to you know do something different than we did in the spring it, the spring was not even remote learning it, it was crisis learning it was let's put something together quickly so that we can continue and finish the school year and, and there you know unless an educator went and did some classes on their own and engaged in conversation there they didn't get any additional help and that doesn't necessarily help in the long run because districts are mandating specific platforms and specific ways of doing things so it's we're, we're headed for another disaster especially uh, with the likelihood that schools will close again a few weeks after they're open uh, which we know will happen if it doesn't happen as a whole state and a whole country. It's going to happen in, in local areas, and those locals aren't going to be prepared for it. Right, because right now in Sunset Park, the numbers are going up. The COVID cases are going up. It's not alarming, but the, they have noticed that the COVID cases are going up, and and that's District 15, which has been fighting right now to 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 hold off opening right now, and they're they're you know they've got the parents involved and they got everybody involved, but. The, the remote learning is is it's it's concerning because we I thought we learned our lesson, you know. I mean, why why couldn't we get all this training during the summer? You know, there was definitely people who needed the work to teach that, you know. And then there was definitely teachers who were like, yes, we know we're going to have remote learning here. So where is the training? So I mean, I feel like everyone's all over the place. Yeah, everybody is. And it, it really required some deeper conversations over the summer. And in New Jersey, we started calling for that in May. We said, you know, we, we want to have a conversation about remote learning and we want to be able to do it in a way that's going to engage all of our students and that's going to be authentic. And that means a few things. That means analyzing these standardized tests. We know the standardized tests to begin with are, are bad for education. That's a whole other issue that's been talked to death um, in education. Unfortunately, it's not actually dead yet. Um, but then we, we need better learning opportunities for the students that extend beyond just looking at a computer screen for hours. So we need some type of model that is project-based and that involves the parents to the extent uh, that we're not overtaxing the parents, right? So it, it involves thinking about, well, what do contract hours look like? And this is where a memorandum of understanding would have to be put into place with the local. But what if an educator could still work maybe two hours in the morning and then two hours in the evening and then two hours of you know prep time or communication time, but split that day up 
and it 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 takes a lot of coordination with with families you know to know what each individual family's schedule is like but then set up check-in periods with the family and say okay this is you know the project that we're going to work on or this is our learning goal let's discuss together how we can reach that goal what resources you have available in the home to do this Let's set up a schedule of check-in times and we can talk about progress. Let's do a couple, you know, mini lessons in between so that I can give you the educational tools that you need to get there. It's a whole different model of learning. And quite honestly, with the possibility of not uh, completely stopping COVID anytime soon, if at all, we really need to rethink what our education system looks like. I mean, we've needed an overhaul in the education system anyway, because I, I'm even looking at, you know, I was sent some of the criteria that, that my school is expecting teachers to do, and I can still see the, the testing in there. I can still mm. see preparing for testing, where I'm wondering where the social emotional learning is coming in, because I feel like the first month of school, isn't it going to be about just like dealing with feelings? Before it, we can, yeah, go ahead. It is. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but on top of the trauma that families have experienced due to COVID, whether they've lost a family member or not, we, we all, and educators as well, right? We've all experienced trauma. Our, our Black students have experienced just a, enormous amounts of trauma and are still experiencing it. And we definitely need some time for community healing. And that could happen through schools and involve the children and involve the families and come together in that healing process, which would be amazing for education in the future. Um, and we're not, and again, that's part of the phase and approach that, that we've been advocating for in New Jersey. Um, and it's not being heard. We are being told, yeah, you're going to, you know, we want some time to incorporate social emotional learning. Again, we haven't been trained on it. We don't know what that's going to look like. We have in mind what we want to do as educators, but we're always at a point where we have to wait because we don't know what the district expectations are because they are our bosses. And that's, that's a, a problem in and of itself because then we don't have educator directed and student directed learning. We have top down learning. And right, and, all, and also it's coming from, it, this is not coming from our federal government. This is not even coming from our regular, you know, the government, the state government. It's coming from districts that are, Everyone has different, is, is tell, it's been told different things depending on who's leading your district. And ha not having that federal level of leadership is really damaging too, on top of that. It is, it is damaging. And whether or not you agree with the federal government um, with no guidance at all or guidance to at one point in time, it was all schools will reopen no matter what or else we're going to pull funding. There's no leadership. And, you know, we don't want a top down approach, but we do want some leadership and some children valued ideals put forward, right? The leader of this country is supposed to look towards building the youth so that we can build a better country. And that's definitely not being done right now. Right. So we're going to be wrapping up, but 
where do we go from here now? So obviously what you've told me so far is that the best thing to do is like, is, is engage in the conversations with, with the groups like file rank and file and, um, and badass teachers and national educators united and get involved, make the phone calls, write the letters. And, you know, what else do you suggest? Finding a model that can sustain those conversations because this isn't going to be our last fight and we're not going to win 100%. I don't see schools shutting down in, in the whole country. It's not going to happen under our current uh, president in the White House. So we need to pre be prepared for the long-term fight as well as the battles that we're facing right now and otherwise we're just going to continue spinning our wheels right so that's building relationships with each other and solidarity to what other groups are facing as well as other educators are facing um and we need to do this as a country uh it was funny the hashtag general strike was trending i think just yesterday on twitter yesterday or the day before and that's been a movement that's been building uh, since before COVID, but really became public during COVID. And that has a lot to do with the people strike and rent control and access to food and healthcare. We need to see how all of those issues are interrelated with public education and affect education. It's a long, it's a hard, hard work. You know, you have to just keep pulling people into your circle and keep you know, listening to their concerns and joining concerns and melding everything together and keep building. And what is the light at this end of this tunnel? What, what do you hope comes out of this? The light at the end of this tunnel, actually some of it's already been seen and that's with the youth. It's, it's the youth that have been standing up and leading the Black Lives Matter marches. It's the youth that have been organizing themselves in different communities and coming together. Uh, so the eventual end is, is when the youth take over and, and do what they need to do to make sure they have the future that they deserve. Excellent. Yeah. And, and education and the reform of education too, I think also. That yeah. Really change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that's part of it that we do need to start engaging with youth more we don't create enough spaces so that we can hear from the students what they really want to see out of their schools it, it's yeah. yeah it's being done in pockets but it's not spread across the nation enough yeah it's amazing what the youth are doing right now and the, the voices that are coming out of this and i just hope that we can keep rising them up and, and supporting them so yeah their voices are heard more. So that's excellent. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for <laughs> taking your time to come on here. And, you know, I think it, it comforts people to know what's happening and to hear from teachers right now. So I'm just really grateful you came on and, and we had this conversation. Well, thanks for having me on, Karen. Thank you and best of luck with, with all of this and going <laughs> back and I, I hope for your safety and, and we get back to some sort of normal one of these days. And so I'll check up with you later on in a couple months just to see how things are going. I'd love to hear where we are in, 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 in a while. So thank you again. Okay. All right. Sounds great. This has been the Warriors of Education podcast, dedicated to all the hardworking teachers across this country. We hear you, 
We see you. We honor you. Thank you.